So just a little bit of review. When the first remnant of Judah, there were three waves of people that came out of captivity from Babylon back to the land of Judah. We're talking to that remnant that came back. And when the first remnant came out of Judah and returned from captivity, the first thing they did was lay the foundation for the temple and they erected the altar so that they could offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And they could begin to worship the Lord. So this work of laying the foundation of the temple and erecting the altar, that all happened without delay. They did it very quickly, and they got it done. And they were supposed to continue that work, continue building the temple, but that didn't happen. The Samaritans living in the land, the people that were left in the land, that had been placed in the land before, who came and filled the void when the people of Judah were taken away captive for 70 years. The people left in the land. When the, the Jews came back, when that remnant came back, those people living in the land opposed them. It posed, they opposed the work of rebuilding the temple and they petitioned the kings of Persia to have that work stopped. But it was a king of Persia who actually gave them the order to go and to rebuild the temple. But you know, leaders come and leaders go, and some leaders don't remember what other leaders did, and this is what happened. And so under King Artaxerxes, the work was officially stopped. And all of this opposition and all of this discouragement caused the people of Judah to turn away from working on the house of the Lord, and they began to pursue their own works. They forgot what God had commanded them. And over a period of 14 years, the work slowed and actually came to a complete halt. It stopped altogether. And this was the situation for many years. And then God, in his time, sent the prophet Haggai to speak to his people, to move them to obedience, to help them consider their ways. Remember, God said this to them. Consider your ways and to help them know the time because they did not know the time. They were not discerning the time. And this ultimately is what we're talking about, knowing the time. So I'm going to read to you Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward 
from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you. You hear that? The Lord said, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, on the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you would, by your spirit, work in our hearts and work in our minds. Lord, deliver us from our blindness. Deliver us from our hardness of heart. Deliver us from our unwillingness to hear, our unwillingness to see. Lord, deliver us from our good intentions and our false assurances that somehow our good works will be enough. Father, I ask that you would, for each one here today, for us all, for your church, reveal to us our true condition having become defiled in our disobedience. Do this, Father, so that you may bless us, that we would be a people walking in your blessing, being a light and being salt in this world for your glory. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. In these verses, we see God using the law to reveal the true condition of his people. His purpose in doing so is not condemnation. His purpose in doing so is blessing. The law magnifies our sin and our need for salvation. I think a lot of people think God gave the law so that we would know how to live, and that's true in a sense. But if we think that we can keep the law and the law can make us righteous, or our keeping the law will make us righteous, we're mistaken. Because we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot earn our righteousness. We can't work hard enough to become righteous in the sight of God. Righteousness is nothing we can earn. Righteousness is nothing that we can gain for ourselves. Righteousness is what God counts toward us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because we trust him. That's how we become righteous. God counts us righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ. Three months to the day since the remnant of Judah began work on the house of God. So remember it set idle for 14 years. Haggai is prophesying over a four-month period, a very short window. So after 14 years of idleness, God sends Haggai 
And over a four-month period, Haggai delivers four words from God to the people. What I just read to you was the third word that came, third word that came to God's people. And God is very specific. He tells us exactly when it came. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. The last word came on the 21st day of the seventh month. Remember it was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we are two months and three days later. And the word of the Lord comes again. And it's been three months since they once again engaged in the work of the temple. So they've been working on the temple for three months, and here comes the word of the Lord again to the remnant of Judah. And God instructs Haggai this time to ask the priest a question about the law. You notice that God is asking the priest, not the people. It was the priest that should have known better they had a responsibility concerning the spiritual welfare and the guidance of, pe of the people. So the spiritual welfare and the spiritual guidance of the people had been entrusted to the priest. This didn't mean that the people were relieved of their responsibility for their sin because they were not. Because the judgment of God, the, chast the, the chastening of God came upon everyone. But God is directing this question to the priest. And this is why God holds teachers to a more strict standard in his word. James writes, don't let many of you desire to be teachers because you'll be held to a stricter judgment. This is true today concerning pastors and teachers in the church. Just as those priests in Haggai's day were responsible to spiritually teach and to guide the people. This is true today concerning pastors and teachers in the church. Just as the priests were responsible to help the people understand how they were to live, how they were living contrary to God's word, and they weren't fulfilling that responsibility, those priests weren't. So pastors and teachers today are given a responsibility in the church by Jesus to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That implies faithful, obedient work lived and performed out of love for the Lord and for his people. In Haggai, we see God taking a principle from the law to show his people who they really were and what they really were doing. Remember, the work on the Lord's house had stopped for many years now. But the people were still bringing sacrifices and offerings to the altar of the Lord that was right there adjacent to the, or in the midst of the unfinished temple. With the people back in the land and the religious service of sacrifice and offering taking place, there was a false sense that the people were in right standing with God. The reality is this. God says you are a defiled people offering up defilement to me. At this point, we need to remember the words of the prophet Samuel to King Saul. 
when Saul took it upon himself because he became too impatient waiting for Samuel to arrive, Saul took it upon himself to offer sacrifice to the Lord, but it wasn't his place to do that. And when Samuel arrives, he says to King Saul, what have you done, Saul? And Saul says, well, you were late, so I just went ahead and offered the sacrifice myself. No big deal, right? Oh, yeah, pretty big deal. Because of his disobedience, God ripped the kingdom from Saul. And thus Samuel's words to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. That was true then, and it is true for us today. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The love Paul wrote about, as well as the obedience Samuel spoke of, comes from the love of God. Unless our first love, and therefore our obedience, and our love for everyone and everything else, unless it is for the Lord first, then whatever we do profits us nothing. Those aren't my words. That is the scripture. That is God's word. This is why Jesus answered the question concerning the greatest commandment with these words recorded for us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. When asked the question, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? The reply Jesus gave was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Close quote. Those are the words of Jesus. Those are the words of Jesus teaching the necessity of our love for God. For if we do not love God first with all of our heart, we can never truly love at all. And there is no profit to anything we do, no matter how good it may be defined by us or those around us. When we look at the remnant of Judah offering their sacrifices to God upon the altar in the court of the unfinished temple, we see a perfect picture of dead works instead of faith working through love. They considered their sacrifice and offerings as proof of their love, but God wanted their obedience more than he wanted their sacrifice. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. We recite these words each week, proclaiming the obedience of Christ. Christ was not partially obedient to his Father. He was fully obedient. John, in his first epistle, commands that we walk just as Jesus walked. In the flesh, we will never walk in complete obedience to God. We do, though, walk by faith in constant need of His grace. 
It is by His grace through faith we desire and we seek to walk in that perfect obedience. Though we will certainly fail, it is in our failures and our success that we are reminded how necessary His grace is in all things. God used the law to teach the remnant of His people that they are not made holy by their sacrifice and offerings, by the deeds of the law, by the works of the flesh. He is showing them that they are all defiled, along with all the works of their hands, and all they offer to Him in worship. <clears throat> the Lord accepted their sacrifice and offerings because He is graceful, not because they were holy. God, in His grace, brought their own defilement to their attention. It was a time for the people to walk in obedient faith, and God would no longer allow disobedience, even with good intentions, to remain. It was time to put away the illusion of being acceptable because they were God's people, living in God's holy land, offering up sacrifices on His holy altar. They were defiled in their disobedience to God. That was true then. It is true today. In some Christian circles, we hear Christians talk about Israel and the Holy Land as though there is something sacred about it and they're going to be saved simply by the fact that they're Jews living in the Holy Land when the Bible does not teach that at all. And Haggai is pointing this out. This, in fact, is the exact thing he is teaching these Jews who were brought back from captivity to their land, to the land of Judah. The Lord wanted His people to understand why the drought was upon man and beast in all the land. God utilized two pictures from the law to help people understand their true condition. One picture is a priest carrying holy meat in a holy garment, in his robe. So priests back then wore these long flowing robes. And when there was a sacrifice offered uh, uh, to God on the altar, that animal was first slaughtered, parted out, and then that piece of meat, whatever was going to be offered to the Lord, was then taken, it was wrapped up, and it was carried in the robe of the priest to the altar to be offered to the Lord. This is the picture here. This is the question Haggai is asking the priest. The other picture is the picture of defilement that comes from touching a dead body. So anytime you touched a corpse, it, not just a human corpse, but anything except that sacrifice, that living sacrifice that was offered. But here he says, when you touch a corpse, are you defiled? And the answer is yes. Is everything you touch then defiled? And the priest says, yes, indeed, it is defiled. So these are the two pictures. So when a priest carried holy meat wrapped in his robe, the robe was made holy. But that holiness did not transfer to anything that the robe touched. So remember the question, if that robe, 
if the corner of the robe touches stew or meat or wine or oil or any food, is that food made holy? And the priest immediately said, no. When a clean person touches a dead body, the clean person becomes unclean, defiled. And all he then touches is also made unclean. So if I touch a dead body and then I go touch stew or wine or, or anything, is, is whatever I touch defiled? The answer is yes, indeed it is. The clean person becomes unclean in touching that which is dead and all he touches is also made unclean. Incidentally, we see Jesus reverse this with the woman who had the issue of blood. She was unclean by her issue of blood. It was against the law. It was forbidden her to even be in public. It was certainly forbidden for her to touch anyone because whoever she touched would then become unclean. But she, in her desperation, being sick for so many years, heard of Jesus and went and by faith, pressed through the crowd, making everyone she touched defiled and touched the hem of his garment. And virtue, power, went from Jesus. And he said, who touched me as the crowd presses? And his disciples says, uh, Jesus, uh, everybody's touching you. Don't you see the crowd all around you? No, Jesus said, someone touched me and power, virtue, went from me. And there was the woman thinking that she was going to be condemned because she had broken the law and she would have been condemned by those Pharisees. But Jesus speaks to her and he says to her, you, your faith has made you whole. And what we see Jesus reverse here is that when the unholy touched the holy, she was made clean. The unholy became holy. This is the power that flows from the life of Christ to his new creations. The Lord in Haggai's day, was showing the remnant of Judah that the holy meat enveloped in the holy garment did not transfer holiness to whatever the robe touched. And the lesson is this, neither did the holy temple and the altar enveloped in the holy land transfer holiness to anything on the land or in the land, including the produce or the people. They were not holy. They were not acceptable to God by virtue of them being God's people living in God's land. One who became defiled by touching a dead body defiled all that he touched. The Lord's people had become defiled in their disobedience to, to the Lord. And in their defilement, in all of the crops, and all of the animals, and all the grain, and all the oil, and all the wine, and everything they touched to bring to offer to the Lord... The moment they touched it, they defiled it because they themselves were defiled. Just as if a person had touched a corpse and then went around touching everything, defiling everything he touched. In their defilement, they defiled all the works of their hands and all they offered to the Lord. Now this may not seem like a big thing to us today because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how those people lived and how they worshipped God. But I'm telling you what, what the Lord is doing through his prophet here is utterly crushing his people in terms of any hopes they had of being righteous from their own selves, from their own works. 
from what they were doing and what they were offering to God. God wanted to make sure that they understood that they were a defiled people and they had defiled everything around them because of their disobedience to the Lord. The holiness of the land did not transfer to those things in the land. Israel, in her defilement, planted and harvested the crops, raised the animals, offered to the Lord. And in their defilement, they had defiled all, all the things they were doing and all the things that they ultimately offered up to the Lord in worship. The curse resting upon the people and the land was rooted in disobedience to the word of the Lord to do the work of rebuilding the house. The, ha the Lord of hosts, in his love, I want you to hear this, church. This was a hard message to God's people. But it was a message filled with hope and blessing. The Lord of hosts, in his love and grace for his people, was making sure they understood the reason for the curse. This was the Lord bringing them to repentance and obedience so that they would begin to walk once again in his blessing. God desires the very same for his church today. We are his people. He has given us his word living and written on our hearts. We are being called to humbly repent and to faithfully work to see his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are called to build up the house of God in love. We've already talked about what that house or who that house is. Let me read to you from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, that's just a fancy word for building up, for the edifying, for the building up of itself in love. So here in this letter to the Ephesians, in these verses I just read, Paul is describing what it looks like to love God first and to love one another out of that love of God and that love for God. This so accurately describes what is happening now with the church being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of woke doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And just as it was time in Paul's day, it is time for us to speak up and to grow up. Before there will be repentance and obedience, there must be a revelation of sin and disobedience. Through Haggai, the Lord was causing his people to see their defiled condition so that humble repentance and faithful obedience would be manifest in them. Then God would begin to heal their land. This brings me to the point of my lesson, of my talk with the children. 
in love, the father chastens his children. In verses 15 through 17, the Lord is commanding his people to carefully consider from this day forward. This is what the Lord says. Carefully consider from this day forward. When God tells us not just to consider, but to carefully consider, we would do well to, to, to obey, to carefully consider from this day forward. A good father in love will chastise his children. We don't like that word chastise. It's kind of an archaic word. Chastise has a very negative connotation in our modern culture. But in the original meaning of that word, there was nothing negative about it. We will correct, God will correct his children and refine them and instruct them to know the error of their way. That's what it means to chastise. When it talks about God chastising his children, he's correcting them, refining them, instructing them to know the error of their way and the consequence of their sin. He does this for love's sake and for their good. This is what the Lord was doing with the remnant of Judah. It is what God is doing today with his people. Drought, blight, mildew, hail, destruction, not enough food, not enough crops, not enough anything, lack everywhere. You say, man, that doesn't sound very nice of God. Actually, it was a very merciful thing that God did to them because had God left them in their abundance, they would have continued in their disobedience and that something much, much worse than the chastisement of the Lord would have come upon them, just as it did 70 years or 100 years earlier when the Babylonians invaded them. We misunderstand what the word chastisement is truly conveying. Chastisement is not born out of anger. It is born out of God's love. We must embrace the Father's chastening as the legitimate children that he loves. Let's consider this for a moment. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is there's not any. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. When you go to the grocery store and you see someone else's child acting up, why don't you chasten that child? Because they're not your child. And here is a very valuable thing we need to understand and learn. When God is not chastening someone... If God is not chastening those who, who purport to be his children, it means they're actually not his children. They're, what the writer of Hebrews says, illegitimate. So when God chastens us, and it's painful, and it's unpleasant, and we're mad at God, we need to remind ourselves that God is doing this because he loves us. And the alternative is far, far Worse, There are many people who will skip their, right, their way right to hell having never suffered much in this life because 
God never chastened them. This is why Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And as the children of God, as the people of God, we need to be, we need to be thankful that God loves us just as parents, children, should be thankful that they have parents who love them enough to discipline. We can all remember our parents disciplining us and us not liking it and being very upset about it. But then when we grow up and we mature, we realize that our parents did it because they loved us. I'm talking about discipline. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about biblical, godly, loving discipline. Let me continue. But if you are without chastening, verse 8, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, for, the, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want to point out that this English word, chastening, I don't know how many of your Bibles say chastening. My New King James says chastening. You might have another word there, maybe the discipline of the Lord. But that word translated chastening is from a Greek word that some of you will be familiar with. It's the word paideia. Now, those that are going to be most familiar with that word are those who are part of Koinonia Classical Christian School because we talk a, a lot about the paideia of God. Well, the word translated chastening in the English here is that Greek word paideia. Paideia means tutorage. It is education, instruction, training, and nurturing, and so much more. In the way we are to live. Paideia is much more than what we think of when we hear chastening or discipline. Paideia is the daily comprehensive instruction in a way of life. Ultimately, the point of discipline is not punishment. The point of paideia, of chastening, is not punishment. It is instruction in a way of life. Discipline is very often painful. God blessed us with the ability to experience pain so that we may experience the vital lessons that it will teach. We've all done that. We've all had a child who is just mesmerized by that first candle on their birthday cake. And they reach and they grab that flame only to shriek back crying because it burned them. But after that first birthday, you never have to worry about them touching the candles again. You don't. Why? Because the pain taught them a vital, valuable lesson. I think that happened to Caleb, actually, on his first birthday. Yes. God's discipline is never harmful, even when it is painful. 
The paideia of God imparts to us a way of life that is peaceable and good for us and glorifying to him. So back to Haggai and the remnant of Judah. After three months to the day of working on the house of the Lord, God commanded the people of Judah to carefully consider from this day to recall the lack of those previous days in the years before they began to obey and once again work on the temple. In chastening his people, and this is what God was doing, we can call it judgment, we can call it discipline, but it's the chastening of the Lord. In chastening his people, the Lord calls them to remember the lack when the heaps of grain were only half as much as they should be and the wine vats were less than half of what they should have been. God struck them with blight and mildew and hail in all their labors, in all the labor of their hands. And even after years of this, God says, you still did not turn to me. This was God's indictment of his people. This is also God's indictment of his church today. More and more of God's people, though, are beginning to see the long years of spiritual drought, the blight the Lord has struck us with. That spiritual drought and blight has now manifested itself in the wanton sin and violence being experienced and even celebrated across our land. We are beginning to feel a lack of abundance. We're talking about it. Supply chain, empty shelves, run on this, run on that. Oh, we're surprised when we go to the store. They didn't have this last week, but now they have it. Think about, it was not too many months ago, years ago, that that was unheard of. That, that if you walked into a store and they didn't have what you wanted, you were shocked. Now... There are some things we walk into the store, and if they have it, we're surprised. Do you see how quickly things can turn? That spiritual drought and blight is now manifest. We're beginning to feel the lack of abundance. Real lack is now known by many. It's being felt by many who are struggling just to make a living. The quality of life we once took for granted now seems to be in danger. Sadly, until it begins to affect our ability to live life unhindered, we too easily ignore God's gentle chastening. God never begins with dropping the hammer. God gives us his word. He gives us the gentle reminder, the gentle chastening. But what happens when we don't heed God's gentle reminder or his gentle chastening? Well, if he's a God who really loves his children, he's not going to stop with the gentle. The good news is that God's chastening will increase to the level necessary until it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you did not already know, we are now in training. I hope you realize that. We have been blind to the chastisement of the Lord, but I believe we are beginning to feel his loving hand and see the shadows of what God is doing before our eyes. We can't see clearly yet, but we're beginning to see. Our healing is prepared for us if we will respond to God's chastening in humble faith. The chastisement of the Lord leads to the blessing of the Lord. This is the point of God chastising His children. 
The Lord chastised the remnant of Judah so that he could bless them. God desires blessing for his children. He loves us enough to chastise us so that he may bless us. And after three months of obedient work, God calls his people to again consider their current situation. And God commands them to consider now from this day forward that the seed is still not in the barn. When he asks the question, is the seed in the barn? The answer is no, it's not. And neither are the vines and the trees yielding fruit. But from this day, God says, I will bless you. Now, that's good news, right? That's what we want to hear about his church today, about our land today. But when we hear those words from the Lord, but from this day I will bless you, we may think things will automatically and or immediately get better, but they don't. And it's not because God's blessing is not there. There's a very practical thing that has to be worked out here. And, and it can't be seen more clearly than the very situation we're talking about here in the book of Haggai. One thing that is becoming very clear in our day is that people find it difficult to patiently endure hardship and suffering. We have become so spoiled living under the blessing of God that we're challenged to live under his chastening. I didn't say under his punishment, I said under his chastening. We're challenged to live under the loving paideia of God, the chastening, the instruction, and the firm nurture of our Heavenly Father that he brings to us in his love. God does not chasten us in his wrath, but in his love. In Christ, we've not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. Our salvation is not only escaping hell and going to heaven like too many Christians mistakenly believe. I mean, that's all salvation is to a lot of people who trust in Jesus, just escaping hell and going to heaven. But it doesn't matter how we live on this earth. But nothing could be farther from the truth. The salvation we have obtained is to be daily lived out as salt and light in this world. That's what Jesus said. The salvation we have obtained through Jesus Christ is a way of life that God has imparted to us. And we must be trained in it. Our salvation is to make a difference on the ground now. We will not need to be salt and light in heaven. We need to be that now in the earth. We're called to be very salty and we're called to be very bright. The blessing comes as a result of the chastening, the loving instruction and the nurture we receive from the Lord. And after years of chastening, we may expect the blessing to come immediately, but the blessing does not come immediately. The manifestation or the, the blessing comes immediately, but the manifestation of the blessing or the fruit of the blessing does not come immediately. Fruit requires consistency and time. God's chastening was experienced in striking the land with drought. Think about this. With blight and mildew and hail. It impacted plants, animals, people. It impacted everything. It impacted the production of field and vine and tree. And by the time this third word from God came, the final harvest had already been brought in for the year. That was the last word on the 21st day of the seventh month, the last day of tabernacles. 
in our, that would be equivalent to our September, October. That's when the harvest of grapes and olives, that was the final harvest of the year. At Tabernacles, that was a celebration of that harvest being brought in. Now we're a month and three days later, and God is saying, how was your harvest? You still got seed in the barn? You still got, how did the trees and the vines and, and the crops do? Well, they didn't do very good. Why? Because you've been under a curse. But God says, but I will bless you. So God says, from here out, from the time you began to work, I will bless you. And so we see that. The harvest they had brought was far less than an abundant harvest. But those words, from this day I will bless you, it did not mean that the vats and the jars would automatically and immediately overflow with oil and wine. It didn't mean that. The people would need to go out and faithfully work the land, the land that's been struck by blight and drought and mildew and hail. They would have to go out and faithfully work the land. They would need to cultivate and root out in preparation for sowing and planting. The blessing does not come without work. I think a lot of people do not understand this concept today. Many in the church today and many people in the world today are looking for the blessing without the work. When I was growing up, my dad would always tell me this. And I never really, I knew what it meant, but I didn't really fully understand what it meant. He would tell me this. He would say, when I was growing up, he would warn me about looking for the wage in the shade. The wage in the shade. Now, I knew what he was telling me. Uh, he was telling me, don't be lazy. But this is an agricultural euphemism that means, don't be lazy. The wage in the shade. In other words, you can't earn wages sitting in the shade of the tree when you're supposed to be out in the field working. I'd rather be under the tree in the shade than out in the field in the sun working. Well, guess what? There is no wage in the shade. You're not getting paid to sit under the tree in the shade. You're getting paid to go out in the field and work hard and sweat and get sunburned and get blisters on your hand. That's what you're getting paid for. That's what my dad taught me. Don't look for the wage in the shade. The church for, for far too long has sought the wage in the shade. We've grown fat and lazy and reluctant to join the Lord's work. We're fearful of biting the hand we believe feeds us, but we're looking to the wrong hand. The church has looked to the hand of man far too long. The church won't stand up. The church won't speak up because it's afraid it's going to offend the hand that feeds it. But she is mistaken because that is not the hand that feeds the church. We need to look to the hand of God. To help us understand this, God is withholding his hand. And we are beginning to realize that man cannot save us. If you haven't already figured that out. In fact, man will bring about his own destruction, that includes us, if God does not intervene. If you think America is too powerful to fall, you better repent of your pride, because it is not too powerful to fall. If you think God loves America, because we're America, and he would never allow bad things to happen to us, you better repent of your pride, 
and turn your heart to God because God will, in a New York minute, allow this country to disintegrate. If that's what it takes for God to bring his people back into repentance and obedience and faith to him. Nobody likes to talk about this. But how can you read the scripture? How can you read what God did with his own people? To his own temple twice. Tore it down to the ground and left nothing there. And all those precious articles of gold, the mercy seat, all of that carried away by the pagans. You think God had any value in those material, earthly things? Absolutely not. And he proved that because he let them be wiped away and taken away. And if we think there's something special about us because we're America, we're mistaken. That's exactly what Haggai was showing the remnant of Judah. If you think there's something special about you because you're Jews brought back into the land, the holy land, and you're offering sacrifices on this altar uh, in the court of this foundation of the temple here, you think that you've got an in with God just because of that? And you're better than all these other people out there who are opposing you? You're mistaken. In fact, let me show you what you truly are. You're defiled and you're offering defilement to God. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. It doesn't hit us the way it would have hit those Jews. But I promise you, when they heard that word from Haggai, that would have just like, I mean, hit them in the heart, man. If they really understood and had a revelation of what God was telling them, and it should hit us in the heart today, too. As we look at our nation disintegrating before our very eyes, and we keep looking to politicians in Austin and Washington. I mean, vote. Go vote and vote wisely and vote for godly people. But don't think that that is our answer. God is our answer. God is our hope. And we better turn our hearts to him in repentance and repent of our pride and our disobedience. I'm telling you, before something worse than what we see right now happens. And God wants us to do this. He wants us to repent. He wants us to, to respond to his chastening because his desire is to bless us. As we obediently and faithfully engage in his kingdom work of building up the house of God, in his time, we will see the fruit of his blessing manifest. As we consistently and earnestly pray his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we... And then we live like we are answers to that prayer. You know what I mean? That you are here in this earth as an answer to prayer, to be salt and light. That you play a part in seeing his kingdom come. You play a part in his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Your obedience to the Lord is your part in that. As we begin to see the body of Christ rise from her sinful slumber and disobedience, we will begin to see the blessing of God manifest in his church and in our land. It is time to work and time to pray. It is not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this is good news. It's not on you. It's not your power. It's not your might. It's God. But God works 
through the obedience of his people. And in our obedience, there is great blessing. That's good news. So let's celebrate that good news. And let's feast in the midst of our fight, in the midst of our warfare. And this is what we do each week when we come to the table. We enter into a feast in the midst of our warfare. This is the table that God has prepared for us in the presence of our enemies all around. And we give witness every time we assemble together. We give witness to powers and to principalities of God's manifold wisdom in saving us and delivering us from wrath through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what we remember. This is what we proclaim. This is what we celebrate. So as you trust in Jesus, welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's stand. My charge to you today is to not despise, to not despise the chastening of the Lord. Learn not only to endure it, but to pray and to work through it. Learn to embrace it as the only way the blessing of the Lord will return to his church and to our land. Many have grown accustomed to spiritual drought and blight and lack, and they do not know any different. Many today have never experienced the blessing of the Lord. We must consider our way and we must consider what has been and what will be when the Lord once again blesses his people. We must work for and look for the spiritual fruitfulness and abundance that God promises. It is time to rise up and do his kingdom work. The joy of the Lord is our strength, so may we work strong with his joy. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you.